I've long been intrigued about how do we, we leverage this institution that we've created, this institution of markets and business, to affect positive societal change. And again, I think it, at the very least, it's got to be part of the solution. We can't ignore business if we really want to be take these environmental challenges seriously. This is not a book to tell you as, a, as an individual citizen or consumer how to be more sustainable. This is not a book that tells business, here's how you be more sustainable. Those books have been, been written. There's hundreds, if not thousands of those books out there. This is about that systemic approach and understanding the role we all play and how we all can influence the system in different ways. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Michael Lennox is a business school professor at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, where he's also chief strategy officer. He's also coming out with a book in the next few days, Can Business Save the Earth? Innovating Our Way to Sustainability, by himself and Aaron Chatterjee. It's an academically rigorous book. However, it's also for mainstream people. I read it as a mainstream person and found it totally readable. As you know, for me, the main focus is on behavior. I'm a big fan of science. I'm a big fan of analysis. But if it doesn't result in the change of people's behavior, I think that's what we really need. You'll also hear me talk a lot about systems. And this book is about systems. All the different systems and all the different parts of the economy and innovation that affect the environment. Now, you could look at that and say, well, it's so big, I can't do anything. You could also say, as he does, it's so big, you can do something. Our conversation focused a lot on systems in the environment. You can play a role, and it's not that hard to find a role to play. So I appreciate his perspective, and I think you'll learn a lot too. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Michael Lennox from University of Virginia Business School. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing very well today. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you here. And the reason that we got in touch was that you have a book coming out called Can Business Save the Earth? And I want to talk to you about it. And it's, I read it with great fascination. But maybe you can say a little bit about yourself. You come from a background. I really like this background because I have this strong academic background. And I like that. And so you have one, you, the, the names on your, of the places that you've been are like the top places in the country, in the world. Uh, but maybe you can give a bit of a short biography. Sure. So I actually have a background in, in first engineering. So I did a, a bachelor's and master's here at the University of Virginia in systems engineering with a specialization in environmental systems. And so I've loved a longstanding interest in environmental issues. Eventually, I went back and got my PhD at MIT in economics, but in a program called technology management and policy. And, and that, I think, really well summarizes where my interests lie. Uh, at one level, I'm interested in, in markets and business. I teach now at a business school. Been all along interested in technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. 
And then last but not least, very interested in uh, policy and in particular around environmental issues. So for about the last 25 years, I've been doing work uh, really at the interface there, you know, uh, talking about businesses and sustainability before we were really even using uh, those terms. So I spent my time, uh, spent some time at the faculty of Duke and at uh, NYU before joining University of Virginia in 2008. And in terms of my, my work, you know, for me, there's been an interesting evolution. I started off doing a lot of work looking at what we might call corporate sustainability. How do we get large corporations to, using my economic speak, how do you internalize the negative externalities that businesses often create? And I had a real kind of epiphany about, you know, 10 to 12 years ago, uh, especially around the time of the, of the recession, uh, the Great Recession, which is that maybe we're thinking about these problems in the wrong way. I had long done work around, again, innovation and technology, and in particular around disruption and, and how disruptive technologies uh, kind of replace the current status ordering. And so that led me down a train of thinking that says, when we think about some of these environmental challenges, it might not be getting that large incumbent firm to change their behavior, maybe a General Motors or the like. It's actually that we need to think about how do you create disruption in markets so that old technologies are replaced by, by cleaner technologies, more sustainable technologies. So it might be, you know, General Motors going out of the business, but being replaced by, by a Tesla or, or maybe another uh, startup or the like. And so that, that really is a motivation behind the book is to try to think about how do you leverage markets at the end of the day to generate the types of disruptive, sustainable uh, innovations and technologies that, that we need. So you talked about a lot of different things, innovation, systems, markets, and, uh, and plenty of other things. And systems was a thing that got me. And it was, I remember it wasn't like a big thing in your book, but at one point you said systemic challenges require systemic solutions. And is that what I'm hearing when you talk about the market, like getting one GM as big as it is to get to get GM to change is not as big as getting a systemic change. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, you know, admittedly, we, we use the title of the book to be provocative. And then good academics speak, you know, the answer is, yeah, it depends. And, and I think that's actually a, a critical point of the book is that the way business and markets behave is dependent on the larger institutional structure, the system that it's embedded in. And, and that's a good story, actually, a good news for us, because what it tells us is there are ways in which we can influence that system to get it to move in the direction we, we need as a society. It's not that you can design the whole system. There, there's no omnipotent designer here that gets to determine how our socio-cultural, economic, political system is structured. But it does mean that there are various institutional players who can have different roles in moving that system forward, moving those innovative outcomes forward. And so we very much take in the book a, what we call a systems perspective on how we make progress on these, these critical sustainability challenges we face. Yeah. To me, a systems approach is the only approach that works. I'm sorry, you need to take a systems approach here. Is it the only way? I'm not sure, but without it, I think you're missing things. And that's what one of the big things about your book that I like. And I have to put it aside here. You're an academic. I'm an academic. This book, I think an academic would find find themselves at home, but it's really for the public. I think anyone can pick up this book and start reading it. I, I mean, it's, the footnotes are there. Yeah but they're not distracting. But I'm not- glad to hear you say that because that was definitely our intent. You know, this was not designed to be a book to just speak to other academics. Uh, we really are trying to get a, a, a broader audience here. Uh, and, and that's always been our, uh, been our intent. Yeah. I thought, I thought you did a good job on that because there are plenty of places. I read it just as me as a, you know, someone's just reading a book and there were plenty of places where I thought, Oh, that's, they did that research. 
you know, good. I want to look that up, but it, I didn't have to. And, or yeah, you did it. So I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so changing systems is really hard. I mean, you talk about a lot of different roles and I agree that you can't, there's not going to be one person who can make all this stuff happen and politics the way they are in this country. It seems like people with systemic, systemic perspectives, they get drowned out by people without systemic perspectives, like pointing fingers. So there's a question of, can we, can business save the earth? There's also a question of like, how, how does it actually happen? Yeah. And I think, I think that's where it's maybe dissatisfying, right? Because you would like to be able to say, you know, here's our you know, triumphant hero who is going to come in and, and save the earth. And unfortunately, things don't work that way. What I worry about sometimes when I look at, like, say, environmental debates, and especially environmental policy debates, is, is we often look at what I would say is a small set of levers that are available to us. And in particular, when it comes to things like climate change, we look at things like putting a price on carbon, maybe via a carbon tax or maybe a cap and trade system. I'm very supportive of, of doing that. With that said, though, that's not the only thing that we need to look at. And in fact, just to be provocative, I would say, even if you were able to wave a magic wand, which, you know, this would not happen in the current political environment, but we're able to get a cap and trade system instituted at a federal level in the U.S., that's only one step amongst many that need to occur for us to actually achieve the uh, the changes that, that we need. And so uh, what I'm hoping the book does is start to raise up in people's understanding of the multitude of other levers that are available to us. Patent policy as an example of something that could be used to try to get more innovation and more innovation towards clean technology. Obviously, a controversial issue right now, but immigration policy. You know, we have a talent deficit of especially STEM talent in the United States. How immigration policy could help fuel that innovation engine here. And it's not just the federal government, right? It's all different types of players and institutions that can play a role here. It's the you know, activist group who is getting better information to consumers about who has clean technology versus more uh, uh, less clean technology. It's, of course, business themselves. Uh, it's the business leaders who have a lot of discretion about how they direct their enterprise. Uh, it's investors, you know, so we can keep going down the list. But all of those stakeholders have a role to play here in moving the system forward. Okay, so this ties together something that I, you said this when we were talking earlier and, and it, it clicked now. Let me see if I get it right. A lot of people out there think, what's the silver bullet? I mean, you, you explicitly say there are no silver bullets here. And you're saying that there's lots of different things that would have to happen to make this work. And most people don't get what they are. And so you're bringing together, these are the different roles. These are the different perspectives. These are the different things that people can do. And if you were to think that it's just one of those you're not going to get it. And you, that can actually exacerbate some of the problems. We do do the example in the book that I like that, you know, to be the number one environmental technology innovation of the previous century around, you know, the 1910 period, you could argue was the automobile. And the reason was it was replacing horse-drawn carriages, which actually were a huge environmental problem because of the manure created, especially in large cities like New York. The collection and disposal of manure was a huge technological, logistical challenge and was considered an environmental threat. Uh, now, of course, we know, you know now years, many years later, that, of course, that there's a global climate change uh, you know, contribution from the burning of fossil fuels. And, and so the automobile is looked at as an environmental bad, at least an internal combustion engine. So it maybe sounds a little too technology optimistic of me to say this, but 
that's why we got to keep inventing. We got to keep, you know, keep challenging ourselves because it is hard to predict the way technologies will evolve and the impact that they will have. And like you said, maybe the increases and then adoption that occurs. And so we've got to continually be be working on. Yeah, it's a big systems effect that when I teach my systems class, I often point out that the solutions that you're, I'm sorry, the problems that you're trying to solve today were generally solutions to something before. And the solutions come up, but they're probably going to be some problem sometime in the future. It feels like a, a, an essential property of systems that things like that happen. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't keep doing things because the problems still, they, they will persist if you don't work on them. Correct me if I'm wrong, but partly I think your approach to come from a business perspective is not just because you have a business school background, but that it's not a static approach to say, I think business is used to saying, if I do something in this market, I will affect the market. Yeah. And that that is, I don't know how to put it. It's like an active, reactive feedback system that I think a purely academic approach or a lot of people that don't have a business approach, they think there's a static thing that I'm going to approach and they don't realize that they can influence it. They get, and I think business people have that. I think quantum physicists have that too because you know, the experiment affects what happens. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the interesting things for me kind of career-wise is that when I was doing my my doctoral work, you know, my intent originally was to actually get a, a, a job in like a policy school. And as I was uh, doing my work, I got hooked up with a, a research group um, called Technology, Business, and Environment. It was um, run by a gentleman, John Ehrenfeld, who's kind of legendary. Oh, yeah, you mentioned him in the book. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and uh, has done some great work himself in this space. And and I think what I really came to appreciate is the power that business and markets can have in affecting change. And we talk about this, we talk about this right at the beginning of the book, that, you know, to some people interested in environmental issues, this, this sounds heretical, right? You know, business is the problem. Business is creating uh, these environmental issues. You know, business is the evil bugaboo here that we need to defeat, even some would say. Uh, and in part, that kind of motivated the title here because again i think for some people that the, the question might even seem ridiculous i believe in the power of markets i particularly believe in the power of markets for driving innovation and change you know this is a very to get academic for a second you know uh, perspective of joseph schumpeter a famous economist uh, about the creating the gales of creative destruction i think that's a maybe still even to this day an underappreciated part of how markets and business work and so I've long been intrigued about how do we, we leverage this institution that we've created, uh, this institution of markets and business, to affect positive societal change. And again, I think it, it, at the very least, it's got to be part of the solution. Uh, we can't ignore business if we really want to be take these, these environmental challenges seriously. This is not a book to tell you as, a, as an individual citizen or consumer how to be more sustainable. This is not a book that tells business, you know, here's how you be more sustainable. Those books have been, been written. There's hundreds, if not thousands of those books out there. This is about that systemic approach and understanding the role we all play and how we all can influence the system in different ways. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So now I want to go back to what you you said that it's been a passion for you for, I guess, your whole life of the environment. And you talked about 
I think you said hiking or going out in the, in the wilderness or what do you think of the environment? What do you think about? What's, what do you care about? You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I think we, we have some of these big existential crises like climate change. You know, water is becoming a critical issue in many parts of the world. Though water, to be clear, it tends to be a more regional issue. So we're, we're very blessed here in, you know, central Virginia where I live where, you know, water scarcity really isn't much of an issue. There's sometimes droughts we have to be concerned about, but we're generally doing pretty good on that. I think, you know, again, uh, someone who's spent most of my life on the, uh, the east coast of the United States, when I think of a critical environmental issue, one that it comes to mind of how it affects our just daily life is, is land use planning. The way we design our cities, the way we uh, create, the ways we, we flow between different uh, parts of our lives. So it impacts everything from, you know, suburban sprawl, traffic, but it also increases our environmental footprint as well. Those issues aren't, you know, well tackled in the book, I have to say, admittedly, but those are always in the back of my mind about how, when not thinking about the system and we let things sometimes just kind of naturally evolve, we sometimes get these, these repercussions that, that then, uh, that, that hurt us long, you know, longer term. And then it makes some of these solutions less, less viable. You know, think about rail in Europe versus rail in the United States. You know, part of that is just because of the way we've allowed our communities to develop here in the United States. Oh man. I just, yeah, I'm not flying for environmental for, well, to live by my values. And I took the, a train ride out to Salt Lake City and back. And in Japan, that would have been really fast. Anyway, I don't want to talk about <laughs> But yeah. I'm, I'm still curious, like, what, what's the passion what, of, of, about the environment? I mean, you, you don't sound like this is just an academic thing for you. I've asked this question of a lot of people. What I'm asking you now is, like, what is driving you? What do you care about? What, what do you think about when you think about the environment? And you, you're talking about academic issues. But I... One thing that I've, I've been very pleasantly surprised at is that people have incredibly different answers. Yes, I agree that no one's anti-environment, but some people, there's like a couple of big, broad things. Some people, there's something from their childhood, very positive that they associate it with, maybe with their family or their dog or something like that. Some people, there's this very negative dystopic future that they're really scared of. Some yeah. people, it's their community around them, and there's maybe there's an issue of just building a mall over some park that they like or something like that. But there's always this visceral something that, that seems to, I, I find incredibly fascinating. And I didn't, I really didn't expect it because I thought everyone thought about things like I did and it's not the same at all. And so I, I found it really interesting. And I think part of the reason I stick with it, asking it is that I think, I think listeners also don't expect this diversity of, of perspectives and passions that come to play and everyone's different. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, we, again, getting back to kind of my theme that no one's anti-environment, you know, we all, we all experience the environment in some way or another. And, you know, just a lot of that's going to be, you know, the circumstances that we were raised and where we live. It could be that you were in an urban environment that was highly polluted and that you remember those days of, you know, uh, of dirty air or, or, or coughing and like, it might be that you grew up in a, on a farm in the Midwest and you were, you know, remember, uh, those experiences, um, those are all environmental experiences at one level or another. And they, they influence, you know, our passion around this, uh, around this topic. And is there something like that for you? Well, again, I think I've always been inclined uh, with the outdoors. I'm not sure where that came from. Some of it comes from my, my parents, but but uh, they were more water people. And I'm actually a water person too. So uh, getting out on the water in different ways, uh, going to the ocean and the like, and, and still do that and enjoy that. It was more in my collegiate, in my, my undergraduate years that I really picked up the 
appreciation of kind of getting out to the forest and the mountains. Uh, again, going here to UVA as an undergrad, we have a, a blessing of, of, you know, a national park right on our, our doorstep with Shenandoah National Park and really getting excited about those opportunities. And I think that's just continued in my life. And I've lived again, I've lived in smaller college towns like here in Chapel Hill. I've lived in major cities like Boston and New York. And there's always an environmental component uh, to that in one way or another. So, yeah, the water one is very interesting. A lot of people on the show have had water ones. And it's fascinating to me because water hasn't been a big deal for me. Although, I mean, obviously I like clean water, but I, I, the last time I was out on a boat on the water was a long time ago. So I'm curious if, you know, one of the big things about my show also is, is leadership in the environment. And I, because I think one of the major issues out there that I don't think technology addresses is that so many people feel like, I want to do something, but if I do something, but no one else does, what I do won't make a difference. And so I'm not going to do anything. And which is to me, the opposite of leadership. It's acting against your values and following others. And I ask people on the show at their option, if they're interested in taking on a challenge to live by a value of theirs. And I wonder if you're interested in taking on a, a challenge to live by what drives you about the environment. And I didn't mention this to you before, but there's a few constraints and non-constraints that I put on it to make it a little easier for people because okay. it doesn't have to solve all the world's problems overnight all by yourself. Cause a lot okay. of people, that wasn't going to happen. So that's yeah. good. To know. <laughs> and it can't be something you're already doing and it can't be telling other people what to do because we got enough of that already. I don't think that's particularly helpful. So it's something that you're not already doing, but something that would act on a value of yours. Most people some people on the show have thought of it before, but most haven't. And, and sometimes there's a bit of going back and forth of coming up with something. But that's the main thing. You know, it doesn't have to solve everything. It can't be something you're already doing, and it can't be telling other people what to do. I think it's a great point. I mean, I think we all you know, have aspirations for how sustainable we will be as individuals, and then, then the reality hits. So putting a challenge to us is a good one. I'm going to give you a, a personal answer in a second here, but it does come to mind two different things that I'd like to talk about. One, we had a, a, have a program here at Darden where we talk about how we live and how we learn in terms of our sustainability efforts. And uh, I didn't coin that phrase, and I, I really resonates with me, though, because what we've said is like we're doing a lot educationally with our students, but we also have to walk the talk. We have to be authentic ourselves. And we have uh, two 2020 goals to be uh, zero carbon and uh, zero carbon emissions and um, uh, zero waste by 2020. And I'm, I'm very proud to say we're going to be zero uh, carbon uh, within uh, hopefully the next couple months. We actually have a, a PPA with Dominion Power to uh, develop a new solar facility uh, that will allow us to, to make those that claim. The waste one's going to be a little more challenging, but we're, we're working towards that. So I, I like this idea that, you know, to be a leader, you cannot just espouse these things. You have to actually live the values ourselves. The second thing was the, you know, the second part of our how we live and how we learn. I definitely think, you know, I have a leadership role as an educator. And uh, we were talking earlier, I, I think one of the greatest injustices that unfortunately business schools have perpetuated is the notion that the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder returns or the purpose of business is to make profits. And that's actually a very simplistic viewpoint. And, and a really, I actually would argue a kind of a naive one. First of all, it's not, it's not legally accurate there. Uh, the reason we give limited liability to corporations 
and individuals running corporations is typically because there is some societal good that they're producing. And any state, you know, corporation, uh, charters of incorporation usually uh, put something like that in there. I think it's also wrong from just a strategic sense. So I teach, you know, first year uh, MBAs, business strategy, and and we often uh, frame it as, you know, you have some discretion about the values and the uh, direction of your organization. Now, I don't want to be here saying that, you know, profits don't matter. They, they do, but they matter in the sense that they help provide resources for you. They attract capital and the like for you to execute on the vision and the mission that you've adopted as an organization. And that's a very different framing there. The end and be all of the organization is not the profits. The profits are a means to an end that are expressed by the, the business leader and by the corporation. So that's the second thing. Third, getting to your personal challenge, and, and one you had mentioned offline to me, but I think is, a, is an excellent one and, and one I, I need to take more to heart. We're doing some work right now looking at decarbonization across a number of different sectors, trying to understand what's the likelihood we can do that in the next uh, 40 years or so. So we've looked at autos. We're looking at uh, renewable energy right now. We're doing a report in the near future on industrials like chemicals and cement and the like. Well, one of them that's in the back of our mind is agriculture. And one of the biggest, uh, or at least not biggest, but at least one of a, a major source of greenhouse gas emissions is agriculture. And especially when you think about like the production of beef. And I am a, a uh, often enjoy a good steak and a good hamburger. So as a personal challenge, I will uh, uh, swear off meat for, uh, I don't know, Josh, what, what's, the, what's the time frame I have to give you on that? Huh. It, yeah, it depends on people. People have done different things here. Some say change of diet is one of the people recognize it's one of the major things. And I think a bunch of people have seen this as an opportunity of like, oh, now I can do that thing I've meant to do for a while. Yeah. So some of the heavy meat eaters will do something like on the scale of weeks to a month. Some okay. of the non-heavy meat eaters, oh, sometimes people say, I'll do no beef because that seems to be the biggest contributor. Yeah. And they'll still stick with fish and chicken, something like that. But some go whole, ho- <laughs> whole hog, no pun intended, <laughs> and say no meat at all. Uh, yeah. And so- what I'm really glad first that you shared that you love it, that you like a good steak, because if you didn't like it, people would say, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't like it, but I do. And yeah. that humanity is a big piece of it. So how about I'll swear off beef for the next 30 days? Okay. So that sounds like a challenge. I know that I'm not into steak, but I, there are foods that I love and going without a food for 30 days would be a challenge. But I also hope that the reason you're doing it is not the challenge part, but the, the value that it's connecting to. Yeah. No, I think it's, like I said, you make an excellent point there. And uh, it it is so easy to get overwhelmed with that your individual action is is, doesn't add up because you know, we're talking billions of people need to make uh, changes in their behavior, but uh, uh, it all starts with yourself, right? Yeah. And I predict that there's something you said earlier, everybody cares about the environment. What matters is the, how much you're willing to sacrifice. And I predict this experience for you may change your perspective that, you won't see what looks like sacrifice now will later seem not so sacrificial and you'll actually enjoy something about this experience. That to me is like the big, one of the major, major pieces of leadership in, in the area of the environment is to change the perspective of people saying, instead of seeing the goal, instead of seeing it as deprivation and sacrifice, to see it as an opportunity to grow and learn. But if I just say that to someone, they don't get it. But if mm-hmm. they experience it, a lot of people who have gone without meat for a while I ask them, okay, do you miss it? They're like, yeah, I kind of do. I'm like, well, are you going to keep doing it? They're like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to give it away. I mean, you're going to have your personal experience. But I think that personal experience is a big deal that talk doesn't reach. Yeah. So I'm moving over to my calendar. And I wonder if we could schedule 
a follow-up conversation for, you said 30 days. Yeah. I want to share a couple things that are the biggest hurdles that people face. Okay. One of them is other people is like, you know, you visit someone and like, Hey, I got this great steak for you. And suddenly you're in this awkward position of like, if I turn it down, if I, you know, and so I don't know the solution. Some people say I will do absolutely what it takes to stick with what I said. Some people say, you know, there'll be problems. There's that's inevitable. It's all roll with the punches and, and, you know, I'm not going to let it end it, but just, I don't know the solution for you and kind of what the second conversation is for is to find what that is. But I want to prepare you that that's a lot of people that's an issue. The other is travel is when you're not in your own home territory, it can get very difficult. Well, it can, or it can't, it depends on the person in the situation, but it helps to, I find that it helps people to prepare to know that these things are going to come. Maybe to, you can't foresee everything, but to think of like, okay, if I go to, if I go to my mom's for the holiday and she, my mom serves me some big steak, how do I handle it? And Another thing I do is usually say, make sure that the goal is a smart goal, but it seems pretty smart. You know, smart meaning, you know, specific, measurable, time sensitive and all that. Cause I try to make it so that people, I try to prepare people based on having seen a bunch of people go through this. Yeah. So we're set for next time. Uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask for this one that's uh, worth bringing up? No, I think we really touched on it. I really appreciate the, you know, especially the kickoff that really let me, uh, you know, talk about what, what the book's all about. So I appreciate that. Okay, great. Then, I will talk to you in about a month. And I just want to add that I, I read the book. I could have, I could have put it down, but I couldn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was like, what yeah. comes next? And so well, uh, I'm glad that this book is out there. And also I'm glad that to have had this conversation because it did put some context in it that I, that made it make more sense to me after reading it. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate your comment too, about how, you know, the book is academically based, but is really trying to go to a, a broader audience. Cause that really is the intent. And, um, and I'm, I'm glad that that resonated with you. Yeah, I think you you bridge that gap effectively. Well, thank you. I hope you could tell I enjoyed talking to Michael immensely, especially talking about systems, because so many people believe in a one-shot approach that one thing will be a silver bullet. And I think he and I agree that progress has to come from lots of different areas. I can't tell how much he and I differ, that he puts a lot of confidence in the market's and technology, I'm not quite sure the difference between his view and mine on the relative amounts, but both of us agree work has to come from a lot of areas. I like a lot that he took a challenge about living by his values and something that he likes beef a lot. I suspect that he's going to learn a lot from that experience and that he'll put more value on the behavioral component. So I look forward to the second conversation too. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. 
Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.